Welcome to this segment of the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. This week on EJR, the Environmental Justice Report, we're going to go into more detail regarding the damage done by the arbitration tool commonly known as ISDS or Investor State Dispute Settlement. ISDS is a major feature that's built into now all bilateral and multilateral trade agreements more recently, ISDS has been used to set aside established law in areas other than tariff for tax policies. ISDS has been called a tool of economic destruction, and this week I'm going to discuss some individual cases as well as a little more history behind it. So this is a continuation of last week's talk on ISDS, or Investor State Dispute Settlement. ISDS uh, basically, the idea was that they wanted to protect that our country wanted to protect citizens. Okay, let me start again. ISDS is a major weapon of destruction used against nations or states that have the audacity to want to protect their citizens from a host of corporate abuses. As documented by think tanks, Corporate Europe Observatory and the Transnational Institute, these abuses span the entire scope of crimes against the planet and crimes against humanity including the illegal dumping of toxics into our air, water, and food chain, land theft, and corporate subsidized assaults or attacks on activists, including the murder of activists by paramilitary forces. So how did this come about? Well, ISDS is an artifact created by NAFTA. NAFTA just seems to be the gift that keeps on giving. Now, ironically, ISDS was allegedly written into NAFTA to allow investors the right foreign nations for, quote, discriminatory practices, all right? So, you know, I looked this up, and basically, this is a system where investors can sue countries, again, for discriminatory practices, but it's one way, all right? Foreign corporations can sue, but the company, I mean, sorry, the country that's being sued can't countersue. And... It is in. It started out in NAFTA Chapter 11, but then it's in the TPP, the CETA, the whole alphabet soup of trade agreements. And so, you know, ISDS is often associated with the idea of international arbitration, and they're under the rules of the ISCI. I'm sorry, the ICSID, the International Center of for Settlement of Investment Disputes. And that group is connected with, guess who, the World Bank. And there's a little more later on about their involvement as well. Um, and that takes place under international arbitral tribunals. And they are governed by different institutions. They're not actually courts of law. But some of the institutions they are affiliated with is the London Court of International Arbitration, the International Chamber of Commerce, and the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center, as well as the UNCITRO arbitration rules. Now, you you need to call this out for what it is, colonialism 2.0. This rule clearly implies foreign nations, in other words, non-white nations, would have such inferior court systems that they couldn't be trusted to handle run-of-the-mill cases. At least that's the excuse. NAFTA was signed into law by practically every Democrat and Republican at the time. All right, this is... You know, ISDS came forth through NAFTA. It was birthed in Chapter 11 of NAFTA. And as I said, during Bill Clinton's uh, administration, 
Every Democrat and Republican voted for NAFTA with few exceptions, except, of course, Bernie Sanders, and as well as then-House Minority Leader Dick Gephardt. But let's look at the reality of ISDS. Now, one lawyer uh, who defended a lot of world governments in these lawsuits called in these investment treaties, really called, really calling ISDS, quote, weapons of legal destruction, end quote. Um, Joseph Stiglitz, who is a Nobel Prize-winning economist, commented and said that ISDS was, quote, litigation terrorism, end quote. And that's true. That often these corporations have such huge bankrolls, far more than the entire gross national product of several countries, that just the threat of an arbitration dispute will make foreign governments just back down because they just can't afford the legal bills. So much for justice, right? So here's the thing. After, one of the things I've got here is that um, there was this statement from a former former, um, anonymous Canadian government official who told a journalist five years after NAFTA was ratified and came into force, quote, I've seen letters. I've seen the letters from the New York and D.C. law firms coming up to the Canadian government on virtually every new environmental regulation and proposition in the last five years. They involve dry cleaning chemicals, pharmaceuticals, pesticides, patent law. Virtually all of the new initiatives are targeted, and most of them never saw the light of day. End quote. And uh, this is really what they refer to as uh, the regulatory chill effect, because let's face it. The way corporate law firms operate and the way corporations operate, you get as much justice as you can afford, which I'm being ironic because that's obviously not justice. ISDS claims are decided by a tribunal of three arbitration lawyers. So they're private lawyers. They're chosen by the litigating investor and the state. That sounds fine. You know, the state that's being sued chooses one of the arbitrators. The, uh, you know, does the litigating investor or the corporation chooses one and there's a third? Except for one little problem here. You know, it's always have to follow the money. Unlike judges, these arbitrators operate as for profit private sector. They do not have a flat salary. And they do and they do not get their pay through the state, but they're paid per case. Which, let's face it, In other words, they're getting paid for billable hours. So there is every incentive to make these cases go as long as possible and to favor whichever side has more money, which is almost always the corporate side. And the International Settlement for Settlement, I'm sorry, the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes said on average arbitrators in ISDS make approximately $3,000 a day. Now, that was in 2015. It might be more. Again, this is a one-sided system. Only investors or corporations can actually sue. The state being sued, the government cannot counter-sue. So, again, this is basically gives a very strong incentive for the arbitrator to decide with corporations because if they have an investor-friendly ruling, investor-friendly ruling as they call it, then there's going to be more lawsuits and more billable hours. 
So am I implying that these arbitrators with their billable hours are using ISDS possibly, in my opinion, as corporate attorneys? Yes, I am implying that. It's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. So these weapons of legal destruction, ISDS, has been here since the late 1990s. And the last two decades have seen multi-billion dollar claims alleging damage to corporate profits. So let's look at this a little more. Who decides the basis for the three private lawyers that rule this, how it works? So we know these cases of mushrooms, all right? Um, in Basically, in 70% of the known ISDS cases as of 2015, uh, the information I'm getting is from a report uh, called Red Carpet Courts, and it's through a group, a think tank called Corporate Europe Observatory, as well as the Transnational Institute. And they do beautiful work. So globally, as of 2015, no, I'll take that back, as of 2019, 942 disputes were filed against 117 countries. and you know, again, there's not a lot of information available, but investors have sued governments for the total sum of 623 billion U.S. And that's approximately the equivalent of 90% of all foreign direct investment that flows to all developing countries as of 2018. Okay? Investors, in other words, corporations, have won in 61% of investor state cases. That's where there was a decision, quote, on the merits of the case. States have won only 39% of the time, but even when they win, states can't really win, okay? And I'm going to explain that a little later. Um, they can only not lose so that they can avoid having to pay out damages, but they still have all the cost of their legal defense. And that means taxpayers fit the bill. About 20, I'm sorry, about 25% of ISDS cases end in, in some sort of settlement, which means governments agree to not only make payments to these corporations, but they also change laws and regulations to appease this corporate group. It's done in total secrecy. You never know what's happening. You don't know where public money went or why the policy was changed. Okay. Basically, this is the Wild West of law. You know, these corporations are so well-heeled, these corporate attorneys, that they can just threaten and these states, especially poor states, back down. They have no other choice, and it shouldn't be allowed. So let's look at when corporations, the part of the report says when corporations ransack countries. So we're going to look at the chronology first, these the timeline of investment arbitration. So it starts, the foreign investor sends a notice of arbitration to a country or state. But this is different from other areas of international law because the claimant, in other words, that corporation doesn't have to go through local courts first at all. This totally circumnavigates the court system entirely. Um, the investor in the state will be assisted by attorneys during the proceedings. The investor in state jointly select the arbitration tribunal. Um, so what, each side picks an arbitrator, and then they both together point a third to serve as the president of this arbitration tribunal. Keep in mind, as I said before, the arbitrators are not judges. They do not have the same rules 
and limits of a judge. They are not required to consider any other law other than the claim before them. They are, for, they are private for-profit lawyers who benefit by basically having as many billable hours as possible. And since it's secretive, there is no transparency and thus no accountability. Proceedings can last years. Again, there's no information or very little information released to the public. Often the public doesn't even know the case is happening. And the arbitrators determine if the state, the country violated a treaty's investor rights, and then they decide what remedy, how much money is going to get paid. Um, the tribunal also decides the legal cost of the proceedings. Okay, so this really is a staff back. Um, the idea that you can challenge the rulings, even if it's obviously wrong, very limited. States are forced to comply with the award. If they resist, the award can be enforced. I'll read this exactly. If they resist, quote, the award can be enforced by actual courts almost anywhere in the world by seizing the state's property elsewhere. For example, by freezing bank accounts or confiscating state aircraft or ships. And this is where it's really damning. Because even though this was arranged by a multilateral trade agreement, no other courts should recognize these arbitral agreements at all. There's nothing legitimate about it. It's literally saying, as I said before, that these corporations and these arbitrators can set aside the, sovereign, the sovereignty, in other words, the right of a sovereign nation to set up laws to protect their own people, to protect the right to clean water, clean air, to make sure that their people are not being hunted or murdered by paramilitary forces hired by corporations. No, this is out of line. So from Chapter 3 of the Red Carpet, Red, Red Carpet Court Study from the Corporate Europe Observatory, uh, I'm going to talk about a few of the cases, okay? And these are cases, ISDS cases, that undermine justice. I'm just going to synopsize a few of them. And, and just keep in mind the idea that justice was undermined is not, I'm not being hyperbolic. It's deadly accurate. So let's start with one. First, there is the case of Vermilion versus France. And this is about blocking climate change laws with ISDS threats. So Nicolas Hulot became Minister of the Environment in France in 2017, and he had a lot of public support. He is also a renowned environmentalist, and the French people thought he would be his champion who would follow through on the Paris Climate Agreement. <clears throat> but France is also a signatory to several investment treaties, and especially the fossil fuel industry, they were ready to use ISDS to challenge any action that would try and uh, try and stop this global climate devastation. So here's what happened. The French law on fossil fuels. Um, the French environment minister in 2017 was really worried about the climate crisis. He drafted a law which would basically end fossil fuel extraction on all French territories, including overseas French territory, and to end it by 2040. In other words, no more oil or gas was going to be extracted from the ground after 2040. And France was making steps. They were really working towards, you know, complying with the Paris Agreement and making it a reality. And the first draft of the law 
would have allowed, as they said, quote, a progressive phase out of fossil fuel extraction as it banned the renewal of exploitation permits. Some oil and gas projects would have ended as soon as 2021, and only a few projects would have existed by 2030, end quote. And it was known as the Hilo Law, okay? And the French Council of State looked at it to make sure that this law was coherent and, and in compliance with the French Constitution. The private law firms um, that make money when investors to states using ISDS really looked at that law, and they saw it through very different eyes. So the Council of State in August of 2017 received several um, letters, what we call lobby letters, on the Hilo Law. One of them came from a private law firm, Pinica and Moline, and that was uh, on the behalf of Vermilion, which is a Canadian oil and gas company. Now, there are 26 fossil fuel extraction sites in France, okay? And a lot of the oil projects were in the Paris region. Vermilion happens to be like the most important, the biggest fossil fuel producer on French territory. And it, it produces almost, according to 75% of national oil. So Vermilion and its lawyers threatened to sue France under ISDS if they, you know, push through the Hilo law. The letter argued that Hilo's proposed ban on renewing any permit on oil, ex, on oil drilling, exploitation, et cetera, that it violated the Energy Charter Treaty. That, the Energy, excuse me, the Energy Charter Treaty was an international agreement dating back to the 1990s, and it granted some heavy-duty rights for foreign investors. And it said the Hilo Law breached France's international uh, commitment to the the inter, to the Energy Charter Treaty. And it referred to six rights in the treaty, such as get this quote fair and equitable treatment of investors. Um, as well as, quote, the fact that signatories, quote, cannot expropriate investments without respecting certain conditions such as the prompt payment of adequate and effective compensation, end quote. To me, that sounds like a shakedown, okay? You're saying we can't drill anymore? Fine, you need to pay us off. That's my opinion. And you got to wonder, when they made these treaties, why would these lawyers allow such bad wording into a treaty? There's no way I would have allowed that. So Vermilion's lawyers, they knew that this was a billion-dollar ISDS threat. And so Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hamby did an 18-month investigation on this, and he wrote, quote, ISDS is so tilted and unpredictable, and the fines the arbitrators can impose are so catastrophically large that bowing to a company's demands, however extreme they may be, can look like the prudent choice, end quote. And that's what the French government wound up doing. They gave in to Big Oil's demands, and there you have it. Okay, so so they transformed the Hilo law, and the September 2017 version did allow for renewal of oil exploitation permits until 2040. So in other words, everything could continue just the way it was, no constraints for 20 years. And then... The final version of the law even allowed exploitation permits that could be renewed after the 2040 deadline. I'm not kidding. So the new law basically was defanged, just from the threat of an ISDS 
you know, procedure. Okay? And to me, that is vile. And, but this is the chilling effect that it has. Um, and it's regulatory chill. And what this report calls regulatory, regulatory chill is, quote, the secret threat that can make governments bow to corporate demands due to the high financial risk and legal cost to states of ISDS procedures, letters from investors threatening ISDS cases are very powerful political clues, um, end quote. And then there's another quote here saying corporate lawyers regularly brag about how threatened claims that never go to arbitration are used to get things done quietly, end quote. All right. It, it sounds a lot like the old protection racket, maybe because it resembles that. Again, my opinion. And, and regardless of what the fossil fuel or any corporate industry thinks, my opinion is neither slander, libel, nor defamation. It is my opinion. So, this is the regulatory chill that they are talking about. To give you another example, um, the Republic of Togo was had a legislative proposal on health and, and tobacco. Um, I'm sorry, in Peru. So, uh, former official Peru's central government office, um, basically, when they were faced with an ISDS threat from tobacco from Philip Morris. Um, he just gave in, all right? Philip Morris also pushed an ISDS case against Uruguay over these were health-related cigarette adver advertisements, okay? So Philip Morris, their lawyers are so insecure. I can't even have a country of basically people of color, the country have advertisements that say, look, smoking causes cancer. Smoking is bad for you. They can't even have that without threatening an ISDS. And that's just, you know, if you're doing the right thing, you don't need to threaten people. So even the existence of ISDS is a deterrent. So that's one of the cases for a million versus France. Hopefully we'll get through some of this. The next ISDS case is uh, when arbitrators reward mining corporations' human rights abuses and this is Copper Mesa versus Ecuador. So there was a Canadian investor that engaged in intimidation and violence toward a local indigenous population in Ecuador. Okay. Um, so here's what happened. There, there's a region in Ecuador called Intag, and it's part of it's part of what's called the Andean Cloud Forest Belt. And apparently that area is very biologically diverse. Um, and it was in so much so that it's been categorized as one of the 36 recognized biodiversity hotspots in the world. But in that biodiverse area, below the mountains, there are also enormous deposits of copper. And what people don't realize is copper isn't just made for, isn't just for pennies. It is, quote, the third most consumed industrial metal in the world. So in 2014, Ascending Copper, they renamed themselves Copper Mesa, and that's the name you'll know by. They bought concession rights, okay, to for an open pit copper mine in Junin, which is a town in Intag. Okay, now the communities of Intag have basically led successful resistance to these mining operations since the 90s, and they do it because mining 
risk not only not only could cause massive just deforestation, but it's risking their water, the contamination of rivers and other water sources that impact everything. There was a, a farmer leader named Polovio Perez, and um, let's see now. So top, let me skip ahead here. Copper Mesa entered in Tagano 4. They didn't even talk to the communities, try and win them over, which actually is a legal requirement for mining communities. Um, and in Tagano, I mean, I'm sorry, Copper Mesa has, the mining industry has a long history of this. Um, so let me backtrack here, okay? This is a little complicated. So Copper Mesa didn't bother to get the didn't bother to try and win the people's intag over, okay? And intag has, like I said, from the 90s, they've opposed mining operations and for very good reasons. They had, in 1995, the people's intag drove away a Japanese corporation, Bishi Metals, which was another copper mining project, um, after several um, environmental impact assessments did confirm that mining and intag would deteriorate the environment as well as hurt their livelihoods. And an open pit mine in Intag is, is going to cause a lot of problems. It's going to hurt their water. Uh, and, and so anyway, and that came from decoying a grassroots environmental organization in Intag. So the company filed lawsuits, and then they filed criminal complaints against the people opposing them, all right? even though the people hadn't actually committed any crimes. Uh, they also filed a lawsuit for $1 million against a local community newspaper in this really poor region. Then the company hired paramilitaries, okay? We're talking mercenaries. They physically assaulted individuals. They physically assaulted children. They opened fired at community, opened live gunfire at community members who were blocking the way blocking the road to the company's mineral concessions. <clears throat> and, and this is what they've done. So the arbitrators in the Copper Mesa versus Ecuador case, um, Copper Mesa, their mining concession ended in 07. Um, that was after President Rafael Correa came to power. Even though he supported, Correa supported mining, the authorities told Copper Mesa, you've got to suspend your activities, because you didn't get the Ministry of Mines approval for an environmental impact study, and you didn't consult with the affected local communities. And, you know, under the new mining laws of 08 and 09, that was enough right there, sufficient grounds, to just say, no, you don't get the concession now. And their licenses were canceled. So the company appealed to the Constitutional Court. The Constitutional Court rejected it. So ISDS arbitrators, and the investment arbitration tool or mechanism they used was the Canada-Ecuador Bilateral Investment Treaty. And this basically allowed, it helped Copper Mesa avoid financial responsibility for their own failures. In 2011, the company sued Ecuador uh, in an international tribunal and uh, for 70 million U.S. And that included any future expected profits, even though there's no way you could know that. And in spite of that, Copper Mesa spent only $28 million on the project. And the company argued Ecuador, quote, expropriated its investment unlawfully and then made changes in their mining laws. 
Well, they're a sovereign nation. They have a right to do that. The arbitrator sided with the company and ordered Ecuador to pay $24 million. Then an undisclosed, says your quote, an undisclosed third-party funder took a cut of the award. Okay? And that's the other thing, too, is you have these hedge funds that offer to help fund these ISDS cases for other corporations, providing they get a cut of the reward. So when I compared this to the old protection racket, not far-fetched at all. So, you know, once again, we have that case, and, you know, it just makes a mockery out of justice altogether. And the lawsuit, so inside of that, um, investment arbitrators gave Copper Mesa this big reward. Then, to add further insult to injury, three villagers sued Copper Mesa's directors and the Toronto Stock Exchange for, for basically not doing anything to prevent the armed assault and attack uh, against men, women, and children from Junin by Copper Mesa's paramilitary mercenaries. Okay? The Canadian courts dismissed the lawsuit. Okay? Even though the lawsuit presented evidence, the company executives had been warned about the attack, didn't matter. Okay? Didn't matter. So when people think, wow, the Canadians are so fair, well, not always. So you kind of have to look at these arbitrators. You know, who are they? And ironically, the red carpet court study refers to these arbitrators as, quote, the arbitration mafia. I'm not kidding. And these are private lawyers. They decide these investor state disputes. Um, and they're, the arbitrators are part of a smaller group of commercial lawyers that are known amongst themselves and in the legal profession as the inner mafia of investment arbitration. And many of them are known for Okay, it says here, quote, investor-friendly interpretations of the law. Um, basically, they're going to always agree with the corporation. And then, to add further insult to injury, besides acting as an arbitrator, they also act as academics. They also sit on government delegations and sometimes represent disputing parties in investment claims as counsel. So this opens really, according to this report, a Pandora's box of conflicts of interest. And here are some examples. There's a Swiss attorney named Gabrielle Kaufman-Kohler, and uh, she is considered, quote, the world's most powerful investment arbitrator. Uh, when they looked at known ISDS, known ISDS awards until 2010, she's also the one that most favors the investor. She, quote, leans towards expansive interpretations of vaguely formulated investment law provisions, end quote. Okay. When you have an expansive view of any law, that would be like saying, well, no cruel and unusual punishment, the Eighth Amendment, if you have an expansive view, you could say, well, waterboarding is not really torture in an expansive view. I mean, you can, you can make this fit anything. All right, this is loosey-goosey law. 
She's also been on the board of multiple companies such as Swiss Bank, UBS. She's been accused of conflicts of interest. And she writes, and, and so there you have it. You also have another arbitrator, Canadian uh, attorney Eve Fortier. And Eve Fortier is considered an ISDS power broker. Again, he also is investor friendly in terms of the legal interpretations. Um, and the UCOS arbitrations, he billed $1.7 million for his services. He's also sat on company boards, and that includes uh, several mining companies, Altan Inc. and Rio Tinto. Um, okay, so there's a lot of double hatting. In other words, they're playing both ends against the middle. It doesn't work. Think about it. If you have a doctor, to give you an example, and your physician is also on the board of directors, say, to a big pharmaceutical company and pushes the med to that pharmaceutical company, you do have to question that judge, that doctor's legitimacy. It just is. You can't, can't obey two masters. Okay? So, and you have to realize then also, if an arbitrator, if their major source of income and their career path is linked directly with corporations suing state, there's no way that their rulings can be impartial. It just It's not going to happen. So now we have a third case study. This is Dirty Oil Attack Action on Fossil Fuels. Okay. Golden Profits Undermine People's Right to Clean Water, and this is the case of Echo Oro versus Columbia. This was in 2016. Columbia's Constitutional Court responded to a bunch of local protests and they basically ended a huge gold mining project by a Canadian company, Echo Oro. The court decided that there would be no, quote, extractive activities, in other words, mining, that was going to take place in these high mountain ecosystems that are called paramos. And that includes one called Sin Turbine Paramo. And that was where Eco Oro had its latest project. Um, basically, it wasn't even a month later, Echo Oro basically informed Columbia, we're suing you in an investment arbitration lawsuit. Echo Oro made a $764 million claim, and that pushed a whole bunch of other investor attacks. Now, there were two slogans during this whole fight, okay? Um, and the slogans were, our gold is our water and water before gold. And that was because the people of San Turbo, Paramo San Turbo, they were protecting their water. And Colombians have to do that. There, there's been a long struggle in Colombia between the people of Colombia and these mining operations that are incredibly huge, gold mining and, you know, versus a right to drinkable water, clean drinking water. And so paramos, you have to understand, these are wetland ecosystems. They are very high altitude, but they're important sources of fresh water. In fact, Colombia's paramos provide about 70% of Colombia's drinking water. And the suburban paramo is the, is the alone, it, it, it is the source of clean drinking water for 2 million Colombians. And can you imagine 
if a gold mining company came into your town and basically went after, say you're in, in here in St. Louis, and they destroy your only source of clean drinking water. That's what we're talking about here, so people can have gold. So, you know, once again, power does prevail. So, Brickle Oro is a Canadian mining company that was previously known by the name of Graystar. And it was also one of the first multinational corporations to acquire or get exploitation, I'm sorry, exploration rights for gold in Colombia in the mid-1990s. Um, you know, again, these paramos are very important to Colombians for their drinking water. They're also very fragile. And, you know, what happened was in 2010, the first laws to restrict mining in the paramos were put into place. And at first, Echo Oil and some other companies, they found ways to get an exemption. Okay. Uh, but in 2016, the Constitutional Court in Columbia struck down all the exemptions. Um, and then Echo Oro, you know, they hadn't received permits for their operations. So in 2011, Columbia's Ministry of Environment rejected the company's environmental impacts assessment, which they had to. So, you know, the Constitutional Court of Columbia basically said, Quote, environmental protection prevails over economic rights acquired by private persons when it is proven that the activity causes harm when there is reason to apply the precautionary principle to avoid harm to non-renewable natural resources or to human health. Okay? It makes perfect sense. All right? Um, this constitutional case, it was a major victory, and this was at the end of a long period of resistance by citizens, non-governmental organizations, academics. They were all led by the Committee for the Defense of Water uh, and the Suburban Paramount. Okay, so there were like 40 groups. The mining industry suffered a major defeat, okay, because not just because they, got, they didn't get their permits, but it was the, the concept that, quote, public interests supersede private interests, end quote. And that was how one gold company complained afterwards. But the industry fought back. So Echo Oro sued Columbia using ISDS. And that was through the Canada-Columbia Trade Agreement. And they totally avoided the Colombian courts. So lawsuit was filed in 2016 at the ICSID, which is the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, which also is the arbitration center of the World Bank. Okay, here's another conflict of interest. Uh, UN data says the company is claiming $764 million in compensation, which is more than three times the $250 million that it had supposedly spent to develop this project. And the company argued that, you know, these laws, quote, destroyed the value of its investments and, quote, frustrated its legitimate expectations, end quote. And the reality is that the Graystar Echo Oro project had problems from the very start. Um, and they go into that. But the bottom line is this. States shouldn't be, shouldn't have to face lawsuits for protecting their citizens, for protecting their right to drinkable water, their right to safe food, for protecting their citizens' rights to not be um, assaulted and possibly murdered, including children, by paramilitaries hired by these corporations. The World Bank does have a conflict of interest here. All right. 
the World Bank's private investment division, which is called the International Finance Corporation, also was a key shareholder in Echo Oro's mine between tw- 2009 and 2015. And that was before. And then they disinvested from the project after there were a bunch of investigations that, you know, basically exposed certain things. So when the bank was financially backing the project, they claimed that mining in the Paramos could, quote, bring substantial benefits and promote sustainable development, end quote, okay? From a legal legal viewpoint, this is a clear conflict of interest. There's no question here. So here's what makes it even worse. Echo Oro's lawsuit against the people of Columbia that just want to drink clean water was bankrolled with $14 million cash from a Wall Street, from a U.S. Wall Street private equity firm, Tenor Capital. And in exchange, Tenor Tenor agreed to to cover Echo Oro's legal costs, and Tenor would get a share of the award. Okay? That's what happened. And then after that, there were a flood of cases against Columbia because they dared to try and protect their people. Okay? And this gets into the idea we don't have time today that there are third-party funders that literally do casino capitalism and they make money betting on these investment disputes. The third-party funding of ISDS lawsuits is a growing business. We will talk about it another time. We don't have time today, but this is how this is, this is getting worse and worse. Okay, there's nothing legitimate, in my opinion, on any of this. So when you look at this whole situation, I think it was Professor Gus Van Harten, who's from the Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, who had the best quote. And it was in uh, another, another report called Profiting from Injustice, again, by Corporate Europe Observatory. And this is the quote. Investment arbitration, quote, investment arbitration lawyers are not just ambulance chasing. They are also creating the accident because doubling as arbitrators, they often interpret the treaties very broadly. So it's a bit like ambulance chasing after your friend has put banana peels on the road, end quote. It's true. Never has an admission of pure premeditated fraud sounded so benign. Professor Van Harten thoroughly understated the corruption of the Investment Arbitration Process, or ISDS. In fact, ISDS is the fourth component of a global corporate legal regime intent on nullifying any rule of law which fails to bow down before corporate overlords. And this is, I'm reading from an article I wrote in 2015 that was published in the now defunct UK Progressive, Nation of Change, and several others. And this was President Obama was in charge, and, and you know, again, it's not it's not a partisan thing with me at all. It's a fact thing. So though politicos such as President Obama swear on their mother's grave that environmental labor and human rights protections have been built into the latest incarnation of an FTA or free trade agreement, those dubious protections are subordinated to the planned institutional deceit of the newly minted judicial industrial complex. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a judicial industrial complex that has grown out of control. This judicial industrial complex 
has at its disposal four legal inventions which effectively nullify democratic rule, it is now known. Meet the new global corporate law and the legal mafia which runs the corporate shop. The new global corporate law, unelected and undemocratic, whether it's the, TP, the TPP, which is still being fought over, TTIP or any other alphabet soup treaty, at its core is the new corp, global corporate law. This new corporate legal regime establishes a unique form of segregation between corporate citizens and everyone else. Otherwise known as the Lex Mercatoria, this new global corporate law unilaterally grants transnational corporations the privileges of kings, minus any accountability or transparency, through various legal contrivances otherwise known as normative transformation. So we're getting a little off in the beginning subject, but I think this is important. Legal contrivances behind VITs and IITs, in other words, bilateral investment treaties and international, um, international investment treaties, the four horsemen of the economic apocalypse. The normative transformations that come to us <coughs> from the world of corporate law and seem to have no history of democratic elections. Professor Fernandez Zubazareta of the Goa Institute of Development and International Cooperation authored a paper on normative transformations and their devastating impact on human rights, the rule of law, and democratic rule itself. These normative transformations are the get-out-of-jail-free card demanded by corporations. They were crafted by the world of corporate law and are known as following. Downwards harmonization or harmonization, regulatory convergence, normative principles, and private tribunals, a.k.a. ISDF. Though these devices are specifically identified in the EU's TTIP, they pervade all international investment treaties, or IITs, and were evident during the TPP negotiations. They are the four horsemen of the economic apocalypse. Now, I'm not going to go into all this today. It's going to take a bit too long. I'm going to because that's what we've been talking about. Private tribunals and ISDF. Of these four normative, we'll talk about the other four another time. Of these four normative transformations, the private tribunal remains the trump card, pardon the pun, for corporate rule. Otherwise known as the Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS, this particular transformation is the enforcer for the other, the other three, the downwards harmonization, regulatory convergence, and normative principle. ISDS was created under Chapter 11 of the NAFTA Trade Agreement ushered in by Bill Clinton. Without the private tribunals or ISDS, the other transformations would fold like a house of cards. ISDS is a form of dispute settlement which serves as judge, jury, and executioner involving three international corporate attorneys, period, as I said before. The process is secretive, lacks any right of appeal. Transnational corporations can effectively sue national, state, or local governments for the crime of democratic rule under a vague claim of expropriation, i.e., or taking. But governments are denied the right to countersuit. ISDS is, in my opinion, the star court chamber of corporate law. None of the players are elected, but they claim the right to, quote, trump established rule of law through these normative transformations, with ISDS being the enforcer. And this information came from an article by Cecilia Olivet and Pia Eberhard, profiting from injustice challenging investment arbitration industry. CEO study profiting from injustice corporate Europe observatories that quoted in conjunction with the Transnational Institute published a major study analysis of ISDS in 2012 and then again in 2015 
but the one Profiting from Injustice was published in 2012. And it's called Profiting from Injustice, How Law Firms, Arbitrators, and Financiers Are Fueling an Investment Arbitration Boom. Divided into segments, the study investigated the total lack of accountability and transparency among the arbitrators and corporate law firms, otherwise known as the legal mafia. Investment treaty disputes under ISDS are big business for law firms, resulting in disastrous losses to taxpayers. Make no mistake, this is big business. Quote, this is from American Lawyer Magazine. Bringing a billion-dollar claim is no longer enough to stand out in a survey of international arbitration, nor is it enough to win a measly $100 million. What it takes to distinguish yourself these days is a $350 million award minimum. The cost is also expressed in human terms. German airport operators report forced the Philippine government to ISDS arbitration, which cost the Philippine taxpayer 58 million U.S. currency to defend two cases. According to one of the study's authors, Cecilia Olivet, this cost could have supported 12,000 per year. Vaccinations for 3.8 million children against tetanus, polio, diphtheria, and TB. The dark anonymous sources inside this industry estimate that over 80% of legal fees go straight into the pockets of counsel. Law firms can earn $1,000 U.S. per hour per attorney. And earlier I said $3,000, so you can, you can split the difference. It's a lot. Often entire teams work on these cases. The International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, or ICSID, published figures which documents a fee per arbitrator at $3,000 U.S. daily. Travel and living expenses for arbitrators are also paid as an additional stipend. Seriously. Uh, with the, so basically, with a fee schedule like this, there's no incentive to establish swift justice. Regardless of which side wins, the taxpayer in any, in any nation loses. All fees and settlements awarded to transnational corporations are paid by the taxpayer. The World Bank International Center for Settlement of Invest, one of the main handlers of the over 450 investor state cases since 2011. This is nullifying democratic rule through ISDS. Now, the White House in 2015 went on record claiming that, quote, this trade deal will require our trading partners to live up to the strongest labor standards in history. These high standards will help workers by, quote, providing the right to form unions and bargain collectively, prohibiting forced and child labor, protecting against employment discrimination, establishing a minimum wage and workplace safety. President Obama's reassurances on TPP protections just don't pass the sniff test when viewed through the lens of the new global corporate law and these normative transformations, and I guarantee you the Trump administration is no better. Any law which is viewed by a transnational corporation as an expropriation or taking of present and unknown future profits is a target for, quote, theft by arbitration. Corporate profit trumps all other law from the Magna Carta to the present day. Democracy itself is sacrificed on the altar of corporate greed. Lawyers from the Millbank Law Firm explain how this attack on self-government works. And this is uh, the sources, Michael Nolan and Teddy Baldwin, Minimizing Risk in the Face of Government Action Project Finance International. Quote, adverse government actions do not have to take place only with autocratic rule. The populism that democracy can bring often is the catalyst for such actions, end quote. Often the very threat of an ISDS case, as I said before, is enough to terrorize governments into submission. 
One of these preemptive strikes caused the Canadian government to abandon anti-smoking policies immediately after Big Tobacco threatened to pursue compensation through ISDS. Um, a former Canadian government official described the very real abuse dished out by, from law firms in the five years since the inception of NAFTA's ISDS provisions. Okay, so this is older still. This is uh, and this source this was from a source in 2001. Quote, I've seen the letters from the New York and D.C. law firms coming up to the Canadian government on virtually every new environmental regulation and proposition in the last five years. They involve dry cleaning chemicals, pharmaceuticals, pesticides, patent law. Virtually all the new incentives were targeted, and most of them never saw the light of day, end quote. So much for Obama's or Trump's reassurances. Law firms also lobby to sabotage any ISDS reforms. Debates been raging in the EU over ISDS. Prior to the enactment of the Lisbon Treaty in 2009, arbitration law firms faced strong opposition from organized labor and civil groups demanding radical reforms into leveling the playing field between public interest and private profits. A major demand was the abolition of ISDS itself. Additional demands included precise and restrictive language regarding rights and responsibilities and language articulating each nation's right to regulate and govern without ISDS economic warfare. No more vague interpretations. But what I'll call the judicial industrial complex responded with coercive methods. The profiting from injustice studies cited how influential law firms such as Hogan Lovell, Herbert Smith, Freehills, and Baker McKenzie prepared a series of debates between their multinational corporate clients and selected EU policymakers, major corporate clients who had successfully sued states under ISDS, such as Deutsche Bank and Shell, were participants in these, quote, informal but informed, quote, end quote, meetings along with various members of the European Parliament, the MEPs. The MEPs understood any existing or future BITs or IITs, along with ISDS arbitration, were off the table. Investment protection was to remain intact for transnational corporations, the non-existent for labor, environmental, and human rights complaints. Conflicting interests of arbitrators, who guards the guardians, okay? It's widely known in corporate law circles that ISDS arbitrators, quote, do not normally see themselves as guardians of the public interest, end quote. One professor specializing in this field stated that, quote, most arbitrators are experts in anything but human rights law. How can these arbitrators then decide complex cases pitting environmental labor or human rights concerns against the alleged but unproven future profits claimed by transnational corporations? The arbitration industry doesn't care. In fact, any criticism of the process or the prime players results in a professional thrashing. To quote Audley Shepard, a partner at the Clifford Chance Law Firm, quote, the arbitrati becomes an omerta, a closed society that vows to keep all others out. And that source was from Global Arbitration Review. So according to, so there's more here, all right? I can't go through all of it where we will run out of time. This is casino capitalism, all right? Um, some of the quotes, quote, it's basically venture law these days. So you have private investors coming in and trying to say, hey, who can we sue next? I'm going to put up $5 million and then let's do some discovery and see where we go from there and really try to reap a windfall, okay? Third-party funding has been deemed a legal no-man's land since this area of law practice is relatively unregulated and any existing regulation has often been written by, a third party, by the third-party funders themselves. 
here's the thing. The inner workings of ISDS trace back to its creation in Chapter 11 of the now infamous NAFTA Free Trade Agreement. As it turns out, ISDS, or the use of private tribunals for dispute settlements, as opposed to actual courts, is one of several devices used by hordes of corporate attorneys in what has become dubbed the new global trade law. These agreements are dependent upon a foundation of vague jargon, I'm sorry, a foundation of vague jargon-related terminology, arcane twisted syntax, and circular false logic. This deceptive language is, in, is integral to the scam, which is ISDS. ISDS is but one of four, of four normative transformations described in corporate law. These normative transformations are legal devices invented by corporate attorneys in order to create get-out-of-jail-free cards for would-be corporate overlords. None of these transformations, some of which we will talk about another time, have ever been presented for a public vote anywhere. Corporate attorneys have been held accountable for what can only be called a fraud. These four normative transformations are the four horsemen of the economic apocalypse. And I would add to it, it's also the, the apocalypse of democracy or self-rule itself. So that's the Environmental Justice Report tonight with Janine Moloff. Um, again, we can't have a clean environment if we have to constantly fight these, these polluting industries as they subvert justice and pervert the very idea of rule of law. And that's what's happening. They don't represent anyone except big money. So with that, we have a few minutes left. I wish everybody good night. And um, we will be back next week, probably talking about this some more. Again, this is, I'm signing off. This is the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. And uh, good night.